Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Oh, Father God, you are infinitely holy and righteous, but we are not. Yet because of your great mercy and compassion, you sent your Son to redeem us, given us your Spirit to grow us in our faith, and to give us some understanding of you. Please open our hearts and minds to perceive, even in small measures, how great and wonderful you are and how blessed we are to be your children. May you be honored as we endeavor to do this. And we pray this to you now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, in the past couple of weeks, as Pastor Jesse mentioned, uh, we've been going through this story of what we believe, this little booklet. If you have not picked one up, please do so. There's some in the back. Story of what we believe is our doctrinal statement, at least the, the draft of it. <laughs> Last week, uh, he, re- he initiated, um, two weeks ago rather, why we use the term story in this, in this title. And then last week, he talked about the short version of the doctrinal statement. And I hope you have found, as I did, that the message is uh, insightful and it maybe rouse your curiosity as to what's next. And Jesse touched on that earlier. What is next over the next eight weeks is a walk through the long version of our doctrinal statement. My hope for us this morning is twofold. First, we need to understand that our story is a look at our faith's most prominent features and not the details. It's as if you went to a national park. You've been inside, say, Yosemite National Park. Jeanette and I have been there many times, probably a dozen times in our marriage, and we've been there many times as individuals. We've been inside the park. We've seen all the beautiful features of the park, the majestic sequoias, the fish in the streams, the frogs, the plants, all these beautiful features as we're down inside there. But I've also had the occasion to fly over this park. And, and in, as I flew over it, because I was on business from L.A. to Reno, I looked down and I saw what I knew was the park because I could see the most prominent features of the park. I could see El Capitan, I could see uh, uh, Half Dome, and I could see Glacier Point, I could see all the beautiful Sierra, Nevada around there, the most prominent features. But I knew that the park was there, and I knew what was in the park, but I could only see the prominent features. And that's okay. And that's what we're going to look at as we go through this series. We're going to look at the most prominent features of our faith. Secondly, I want us all to understand that this gift of faith we have today, and the Word of God does say faith is a gift, the gift of, that we have today is exceedingly similar and linked to the faith of God-fearing people, people who have sought after God and worshipped Him since the earliest biblical times. Our faith today is part of a continuum of a faith heritage, reflective of even the earliest parts of this old, of the Old Testament. What we believe today is essentially what followers of the true God have always believed. Accordingly, our story would resonate with these ancient brethren. The first item mentioned in our story is about God himself. And here, it's on page 8. It's also in your bulletin. We will look at the phrases in the paragraph one by one. And to help illustrate each concept, I will often introduce a word or a name the people of ancient Israel may have used to describe a specific attribute or characteristic about God. And an attribute or a characteristic 
characteristic that can only be of God. These names, these Hebrew names are powerful descriptors. So please listen for them. Please allow me to read what our doctrinal statement says about God. God, forever and always, the one true God who created the world, sustains it by his power, and redeems it for his glory, has existed in the three persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are equally divine, perfectly perfect in holiness, and unified in purpose, and so equally deserve our love and devotion. The first thing that our statement mentions about God is that he is eternal. God, it says God forever and always. God is eternal, and our ancient brothers and sisters would have known this. In, the, in Genesis 1, it says, in the beginning, verse 1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This indicates that God has always existed before anything else. And God was present to form all which has existed since then, or we know to have existed. In Genesis chapter 21, there's a Hebrew term referring to God as being eternal. It is El Olam. El Olam means everlasting God. The text of Genesis 21 says that this was an, an occasion where Abraham called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Abraham was worshiping God at the time. And that's the first time that everlasting God is used in the Old Testament. El Olam. And this leads to other familiar uh, ways of describing the eternal characteristics of God, such as the God of eternity. We've heard him called the God of the universe. We also know him as the God of ancient days, or simply the ancient of days. Jeremiah 10.10 10 refers to God as being the eternal king. Isaiah 26.4 encourages us and assures us to trust in the Lord forever for he is our eternal rock. God is eternal. A part of faith we clearly share with, our, with the ancient people of God. God forever and always. Next our story says that the one true God has existed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It says God is the only genuine God, and he exists as a trinity, three in one. The ancients recognized God as being more than one person. The writers of the Old Testament referred to God as Elohim, which is actually plural for God in Hebrew, Elohim. They so believed that God was embodied in more than one person that the term Elohim is used 2,700 times in the Old Testament. That's a lot. Consider again from Genesis 1. It says, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And further in Genesis 1, it says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. In Genesis 3, God is admonishing the serpent for having tempted and, and led us weak human beings into sin. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and, his, and her offspring. He shall bruise your heel. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This hints at the promised Messiah of Elohim as being God and man, yet another person. But lest you think our faith 
and their faith is based on multiple gods, be reminded what Deuteronomy says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. One God, three persons in the Godhead. To describe God as being the only genuine God, the true genuine God, our ancient brethren would have used a term like El Elyon, or Most High God. This name represents God's majesty, his preeminence, and sovereignty. El Elyon is frequently found in the Psalms, but most often in the book of Daniel. I would encourage you to check out Daniel 4, and you can see, you get a flavor of King Nebuchadnezzar's encounter with El Elyon face to face. It was very humbling to him and should be very powerful to us. I know it has been to me. Yes, the God of our faith heritage is the only true God, existing as three in one. The one God has existed in three persons. Next, the story of what we believe says, together they created the world, sustained it by their power. What this tells us is that as one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit made the world and powerfully keep it going. The God of our faith is a powerful creator. Our ancient Hebrew brethren often referred to God as El Shaddai. El Shaddai means Almighty One or the All-Sufficient One. It indicates that God lacks absolutely nothing. God is fully self-contained. He is complete in everything that's required for him to be God and to act as God. Yes, he is sufficient, not only in terms of what he may provide for his children, but again, completed everything for him to be God and act as God. Earlier, we glanced at God's calling things into existence, and now we know with assurance that El Shaddai, and only El Shaddai, could have powerfully caused everything to be. In the book of Job, we see what a powerful impact this truth had on him. Job humbly admits to God in Job in the chapter 42, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. When I consider this particular truth about God, as El Shaddai, my brain really wants to explode. I'm serious. <laughs> Through God's creation, we're able to witness some of the effects of his awesome power. Yet in his creation, we're only able to see a mere sliver of the slightest fraction of his total power. We cannot begin to comprehend it. But, and yet, this immensely powerful God, El Shaddai, has a deep and intimate knowledge of us, each of us, his children. When you read Psalm 139, verses 16 through 19, you can see that. One of God's purposes has always been to love and care for his children. That this powerful El Shaddai God desires to do this is well beyond our comprehension. Mind blown! God is the creator having unmatched power. Together they created the world and sustained it by their power. We've now reached the climax of the purpose and works of God, not the end of the story, 
but the purpose and works of God. This is the peak, and we celebrated it earlier. The story of our belief says that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created everything, sustained what they created, and together they worked to redeem it for their glory. Yes, we celebrated that early, earlier, Jesus' death on the cross on our behalf. Our ancient brethren totally understood the concept of redemption as being true. That's because they trusted God to provide a, a Savior, a Messiah, as he promised. And the promised Messiah was the woman's offspring of Genesis 3, who turned out to be the Son of God, Jesus. The Bible tells us the ancient saints looked forward to his coming. And it's ironic for me, a really great example of this is in the, Old Te- in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 2, when we see Simeon and Anna worshiping these elderly, love, lovely saints, worshiping God in the temple. And Joseph and Mary bring the infant Jesus to the temple because they need to offer sacrifices for purification. And Simeon and Anna see their Messiah being held in the arms of these people. And they're so grateful. And they're awestruck. And, just, and they're just... God has done this for us. He's allowed us to see this because they grew up. Think of it. They grew up in the time when the Messiah was yet to come. But now he's here in their very presence. They look forward to this. Here are some Hebrew names which speak to God's redemptive attributes that we are familiar with. Hebrew names like Jehovah Shalom, meaning the Lord is peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And there's a couple of tricky ones here. I hope I don't butcher them too badly. Jehovah Mekodishkim, the Lord who sanctifies us. Jehovah Mekodishkim, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. And then Jehovah Tzikednu, meaning the Lord, our righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness. Through the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the plan of redemption and restoration was fulfilled. Consider, the Apostle John reminds us of the Son's role as our Redeemer. 1 John 2 says, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, that is the payment, the ransom. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. As sinners, we have hope through Jesus. Further in 1 John, we are reminded that Jesus' death also destroyed everything the devil stands for. 1 John 3 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. We should praise Jesus for this victory. He's not only captured our hearts, but he's destroyed everything that that can stand in our way of worshiping him. Imagine that. In Colossians, our faith is affirmed that Jesus restored everything through his crucifixion. Through him, Jesus Christ, to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God's plan of redemption, restoration, and reconciliation gives God glory as it was carried out carried out by all three members of the Trinity, climaxed by the work of Jesus on the cross. 
They redeem it for their glory. Our story next says that these three are equally divine, perfect in holiness and unified in purpose. So we see that God is holy and that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work in unison to accomplish God's purposes. Regarding God's holiness, Exodus 3, we can recall in Exodus 3, Moses encountered God at the burning bush in the desert. And the Lord declared to Moses that he was standing on holy ground. Well, what made that that ground holy? God himself was there. God is holy. As well, God's name is holy. It's just as holy as God himself. Exodus 3, further on in Exodus 3, it says that, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. The rendering in Hebrew of I am is Yahweh or Jehovah. And the name is very holy. It is so holy that back in those days, you wouldn't dare speak it for fear of committing blasphemy. In your Bible, in the Old Testament, you see Lord and it's all in caps. That signifies the use of the word Yahweh. Yahweh is holy. You couldn't say the word Yahweh. But ancient brethren were faced, then faced with a dilemma. Okay, how can we mention God in our prayers and in our speech without risking this sin? they began to refer to God as Adonai, which is Lord in Hebrew. And Lord, spelled only with the capital L in your Bibles. And by using Adonai, Lord, they would still acknowledge God's lordship over them, his majesty, and give him the reverence due. And they would also be able to acknowledge God's holiness. Our holy God does deserve to be our Adonai because he is a holy Lord. Well, they are equally divine, perfect in holiness, and unified in purpose. As far as unity, we've already seen in Genesis how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work together in creation. And we likewise saw powerful evidence of this as God in the Trinity worked together carrying out the plan of redemption. The Godhead is holy, and in unity fulfills its purpose perfect in holiness and unified in purpose. The story of what we believe appropriately concludes this this section about God by saying that the entire Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are worthy of our devoted affection. It says they are equally deserving of our love and devotion. Again, if we look at the book of Deuteronomy... God reveals his expectation for his children regarding their attitudes of love and devotion towards him. We'll begin at Deuteronomy 6, 4 again. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Then it says, You shall love the Lord your God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So we're to love God with pretty much our entire being. Yeah, we got to totally commit to loving God. This is what God wants. 
But listen to these words of David. During a celebration of the Ark of the Covenant returning back to Jerusalem, coming into Jerusalem, David reminds the people of God, for great is the Lord, greatly to be praised, and he is to be held in awe above all gods. Solomon said this to the people as he addressed God, the, them at the conclusion of the dedication of the temple a generation later. Solomon said, let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God. That is entirely true to the Lord our God. Let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. That's from 1 Kings. The apostle Paul, John tells us that this is the love of God, that we obey his commands and his commands are not burdensome. That's from 1 John 5. Well, if his commands are not burdensome, what are those commands? Jesus tells us in Matthew 22, he's explaining the, the commands that we need to obey. And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first command. And a second is like it. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the love of God that we obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. To love God, we must obey God. To obey God, we must love people. Or to put it another way, to love God, we must obey God. To obey God, we must love people. And this loving people is often easier said than done. But I've seen and observed over the years how many of you have loved. And here's some of those examples. When we had the outreach in Rochelle, we would minister to a homeless shelter out there known as races. And when we go to minister to those people, we would bring food, which many of you prepared. We didn't do it. People going out there didn't do it. You prepared it. We just delivered it. You prepared food. We would worship with them. We would deliver a message and we'd have fellowship. And on special occasions like Christmas and Easter, many of you people sewed the Christmas stockings. Many of you people prepared the Easter baskets. You loved these people, and they knew you loved these people. They never met you, but they knew they were loved. Not only did you sew these stockings and make these baskets, you filled them with things that they can use, a toothbrush maybe, or a razor, or maybe a comb and a brush, and, and maybe some clean socks, and maybe a toy for a child. These people were loved, and you people loved them. We heard a couple of weeks ago about Nicole Martinez. Some of you may have been here. Maybe it was last week. And Nicole, many of us know her. Some of you do not. She's incarcerated for something she did before she came to the Lord. And the miracle is that God used that whole situation to bring her to him. But that's a different story. And it's a great story. But you love Nicole. And we have seen that love in this, in this body here. You sent her cards. 
You send her notes. You send her books. You love on her. And then there's the First Nations people in the northern end of Ontario province. Many of us will, many of us will never get to meet those people. And they, they have no idea who some of these people are. These women who have crocheted these beautiful potholders and given them to them as gifts. They feel loved. We love these people. We love. We know how to love. Here are some other ways, practical ways, to love on people. Can you babysit? Do you have a driver's license and be able to provide a ride? Do you have time to mow someone's lawn? Can you tutor a child? How do you respond to a family with a new infant? Can you visit the sick? Do you bake? Or can you make a casserole? There's a lot of good casseroles back there, let me tell you. But can you make that for someone who's in need? Do you have time to write a quick note of encouragement? Do you spend time getting to know your neighbors? I mean, really getting to know your neighbors. These are just a few more examples of loving people and loving God. We need, and I'm speaking to myself now, have ears and eyes open when we talk to people and listen for clues as to what their needs may be. They may have some deep emotional hurts. They may need somebody to say, hey, let's go have some coffee. We'll talk. We'll pray about this. I don't know. But we need to have ears and eyes open to the people we're talking to to understand their needs. We have another practical way here at KBC to respond to people in need. It's our care ministry. And Kathy Sell, if you'll raise your hand and wave it, there she is, Kathy, faithfully sends out emails to everyone who's on the KBC email list, sends out emails describing families who may be in need and what those needs may be. So when you see her email pop up, and I know many of us are well beyond emails. I'm not. I'm still an email guy. I'm barely a text guy. I'm not a Facebook guy. But if you look at your emails, please look at those emails. Don't ignore them. And don't assume that somebody else is going to respond to the need. Open them up. Contact Kathy. Find out what, do these family, what does this family need? What do these people need? Right now at KBC, in this family, we have at least one newborn in our midst. Young Asher, right? Yes. We have one newborn in our midst. We have four more newborns coming this year. Okay. We have a single-parent family whose car was totaled this week, and that parent suffered a broken hand. We have needs. People have needs. These are a lot of ways that we can love people. To love God, we must obey God. To obey God, we must love people. Our story says the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are so equally deserving of our love and devotion. El Olam, the everlasting God, God forever and always. Elohim, God has three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. El Elyon, most high God, the one true God. El Shaddai, the almighty God or all-sufficient one, powerful creator and sustainer and how he's worked out redemption in our lives. We see that as Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. 
Jehovah Mekodeshkim, the Lord who sanctifies us. Jehovah Sekedu, the Lord our righteousness. This is our God. We've now looked at the story of what we believe and what it says about God. We've also seen that our story is part of an ancient faith heritage. The faith of the people of God since the beginning of times. Let me read this statement about God one more time. God, forever and always, the one true God who created the world, sustains it by his power, redeems it for his glory, has existed in the three persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are equally divine, perfect in holiness, and unified in purpose, and so equally deserve our love and devotion. Father God, thank you that you are who you are. And we are amazed that in all your great attributes, you stooped down to love us, to redeem us from ourselves by the blood of your son on the cross. And it's because of that, we are able to worship you even now and found worthy to be in your presence. We thank you for that, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Psalm 150 says, Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H Bible dot O-R